Welcome to the Dream for Others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big-hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world, this is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today I am honoured to have Desiree Attaway on the Dream for Others podcast. Desiree is a seasoned nonprofit consultant and facilitator. All of her presentations have a mix of thought-provoking content presented with humour and wit. When she teaches, she makes a point to connect with every person and create a safe space for their growth. She is known by staff, senior leadership, peers and partners as being great at open, honest and productive conversations. She is not afraid of addressing anything that gets in the way of great work. Her style is positive, approachable, engaging, service-oriented and audience-centred. And this is all while often leading difficult conversations on race, class and gender. I am really looking forward to chatting with someone who has decades of experience in helping leaders create real and lasting change in the world. But before we get started, if you haven't heard already, we now have a philanthropic podcast project where Dream for Others listeners are joining forces to make a difference for as little as $2 per month. We would love if you would consider joining us at patreon.com slash dream for others. Now enough introductions, let's jump in and learn from Desiree. Hi Desiree, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to chat with me today. Well, hi Naomi and thanks for inviting me to chat. Uh, I am so excited to talk to you because for lots of reasons, but I've been looking through your website and have been reflecting on a lot of things that you shared in your blog posts because you have a lot of great content in there. Mm, thank you. I, you know, I always tell, I'm not a, I'm not a writer at all. Uh, some people love writing. I find it to be a punishment <laughs> from God directly. And I, I'd never call myself a writer. I write in little spurts. Yeah. Um, so I, I write at the speed of Facebook, right? A Facebook post, you know, 140 character tweet. Yeah. Um, and then somehow content is created. <laughs> interesting people mightn't know that if they don't know you because you are a good writer oh I hate it <laughs> because I do I mean I, I like anybody like people have said like are you writing a book and I'd rather jump off a building <laughs> um, and I make no bones about that um yeah. and anybody who knows me they just find it hysterical when people are like are you writing a book no I'm not one of these people who's fantasy in life is to write a book at all. I'm not that person. Um, for me, writing is actually not about, um, it's not about the mechanics of writing. It's actually not about writing. Writing for me has always been a way for me to find my voice and to express that. And, um, yeah. So if, for whether that's me talking with someone, teaching, um, doing community work, activism, um, all of those, we are just ways that I express my, my voice around issues that are really important to me. So, um, I'm not a writer. Hmm. So how do you prefer to express your voice? Is it through speaking and, and talking to people and things like that? Um, I love teaching and facilitating. Um, for me, that's one of the best ways that I think, um, I get to use my powers, but, uh, lately, and this is really fascinating. It's been through, um, I would say I, I use the Facebook platform as a way of really articulating um, my thoughts around really important issues and needs. Um, I use I use different online platforms to do that. And I know that some people are so against that. They're like, you can't have really deep, nuanced conversation online right? Um, feelings get hurt, things get misinterpreted. And I push back on that a little and I go, 
you cannot tell me that this is not the perfect platform to have some of these discussions. I cannot believe that the universe bought us the interwebs, which allows me to talk to you in Australia, yeah. right, around these issues, just to, so we could talk about, I don't know, pie recipes and, and watch cat videos. <laughs> I don't believe that that's all the internet was created for, yeah. right, to share the Thai food that I had for dinner. I believe that it is so that we can we can connect and build communities in really meaningful ways that we can gather together in really meaningful ways. And what happens is when you gather and we have to communicate, then there are misunderstandings mm. and we do miss nuance. Um, and no one's saying that the only place you communicate like that is online. Um, but I think it's one of the ways and one of the places that we communicate. Mm. And we're spending so much time there. Yeah, I just like people who are like, no, you can't talk about difficult subjects online. I'm like, yeah, you can. Yeah, you absolutely can. But there's a way that you do it. Um, right. There's a difference between kind of debate and um, discussion. Mm. Those are two different things. Mm. Well, you're showing that it's possible yourself in what you are doing. Yeah, I, that's, I, I love it. I love I love doing it. So yeah, I like to prove people wrong. I'm that kind of I'm that kind of person. <laughs> You're not alone there. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who aren't following you and aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do and how you how you got there? Sure. I always say that I talk. I do. I I talk about race, class, and gender. Mm. And, and the work that I do is built around equity and inclusion work. And so I, I do consulting work. I do training and teaching and I do coaching and speaking uh, around oppression. And at the core and heart of my work is liberation. And um, y'all can't see, but I, I wear a little um, bracelet and there's a little word on my little bracelet, and it is liberation. And I hold it close to me because every day that's what it's about. It's about us getting free together, fighting these oppressive systems that hold us all down. So um, in all the different ways, there, there are times, there are systems that want to oppress me because of, of various identities and then there are parts of me that oppress others because of identities. And so it is really about understanding what does freedom mean and looks like for communities and how do we get free and how do we do that work internally and externally? Um, and for me, that it's, it's an inside and outside game. I don't get to do the work only internally and not pay attention to how Others are, surf, are uh, suffering externally, and I don't get to just spend all my time in that suffering externally and not do my internal work. Mm. And is this something that you were always questioning within yourself and have always, and, and within the work about the world? Um, and have you always been working in this space, or is this something that's evolved over time? Well, being a black woman in the U.S., I've, I've always been in this space from yeah. the second I was born. I was mm -hmm. bought in this space. Um, and, and, and I've known this my entire existence. So what's really fascinating is I've been doing these. Um, you may not know this. I, for the past year and a half, I've been doing these conversations with strangers. And I have them on race, class, and gender. Yeah. And they've been really fascinating and wonderful and and just mind blowing. But one of the pieces, one of the questions I always ask is, what are the identities that you use to navigate the world? And I'm fascinated when predominantly white women never identify as white. And that's simple. And there's a reason for that. It's because that's the norm. Mm -hmm. And so it's nothing, you don't think about it. Right? You just don't think about it because yeah. that's what everything is centered around. Like men don't think about that they're men, right? And being a straight person, you don't have to think about being straight because everything's built around that for you. Mm. So um, I always ask that question, what identities do you use to navigate the world? 
And as a black woman born in the U.S., I will tell you, you could have asked me when I was six years old, yeah. what was I? And I would have told you I'm a black girl. Yeah. And that's it's something I'm incredibly proud of. It's something that is um, that I I am aware of every moment of every day. And it's something that I am happy to be aware of every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Sometimes I'll, I'll say something online and people will be like, no, Desiree, you're just you or you're, you're you. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm a black woman. Yeah. Like there's nothing wrong with identifying that I'm a black woman. And because of that, I have this certain lived experience yes. that I love. Yes. That I love. And so there's, for me, there's, there's, yeah, say yeah, you know Desiree, the black woman Desiree. Yes, that's who I am. It totally, you can totally acknowledge me like that. Um, because that's who I am. And again, that lived experience is deep and rich and wonderful, and I adore it and I love it. And I and I I identify with it. Mm-hmm. And it's shaped everything. It shapes everything. Mm-hmm. And and just like being white and Australian shapes everything for you. It gives you a certain lens and worldview by which you then interact with the world. Mm. Yeah, and being aware of that, oh, that shapes everything too. <laughs> it does. It's right, mm. the awareness of it. And there's nothing to be ashamed of, right? There's nothing around that that says, that is to make you feel guilty or shameful about who or what you are. It just is. Mm-hmm. Right? It just is. And so we get really caught up in feeling certain kind of ways about how, you know, about identity. And I'm like, it, it you know, that ain't changing. Mm-hmm. I'm a black, I'm 51 and I'm a black woman and I'm going to be one till I die. And I can totally live and be in that and understand what that means for others, but really more importantly, what that means for me and how I choose to interact with the world. And I think I was reading somewhere that you're often the only black woman in the room or at the table. Oh, it can be. Yeah. I've been plenty of time. Yeah. I I worked in a lot of businesses, a lot of corporate and corporate environment with plenty of times where I was the only one I've worked in a lot of um, NGOs, um, high up in leadership where I was the only one. There've been plenty of rooms where I've walked in and I've been the only one. I was an exchange student in Germany when I was 16 and, you know, went to a high school where I was the only not only the only American, I was the only black kid to be found for miles in northern Germany in this little tiny town. Mm. Uh, and where people would touch my skin without permission and touch my hair without permission and and touch me, right? And and um, so, yeah, so I learned to navigate those spaces pretty early. But, but we also learned to navigate those spaces because that's what keeps you safe. Mm. Right. I, I have to understand how to walk into a room where I'm the only one. And, and, and I'm not saying this to be dramatic, but I'm saying this because it's real and then know how to get out of that room Yes, and, and have kept everybody happy and intact mm-hmm. so that so, so that I, I leave there without being physically harmed. I'm not talking about emotional harming is that physically I get to walk out of that space. Yeah, well. And I, I, the other, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking as well, isn't it interesting that people feel uncomfortable when you identify as a black woman, but then you're expected to represent all of the black women in these situations. Oh, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and make other people feel comfortable around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And be concerned about your safety while you're there. That's right. To make people feel comfortable around me. Um and that's something you learn at a, at a really early age, you know, and, 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 and folks may think, well, oh God, she's exaggerating. You know, you, I'm sure everybody around the world has heard the story of Sandra Bland, who was the young black woman driving, just moved to Texas, was driving, got pulled over by the cop, happened um, two years ago, I think now, or a year ago two years ago and 
he pulled her over, said she did a moving a violation, didn't like her attitude, um, and literally arrested her for no reason. Like when you see the video, the reason she was arrested is because she didn't use, he was close behind her and she didn't use her turn signal to get over into the other lane. Oh. So he stopped her. And then the altercation, which pretty much came because she wouldn't, she wouldn't make him feel comfortable. Uh, she was a little bit too mouthy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he arrested her and took her in and arrested her and took her to jail. And nobody knows what happened after that. She was in a jail cell on a Friday and she was dead by Sunday. Hmm. And they said she herself. And her family says, absolutely not. So anyway, so Sandra Bland goes missing and winds up dead. And so, but we learn early on to make people in power feel comfortable so that something like Sandra Bland does not happen. And every young, every black kid in this country, every brown person in this country is taught you know, your fam we call it the family has the talk with you where you are taught what to do when you're stopped by the police or some other entity um, so that you get out of it alive, essentially. Do you ever have moments when you experience these things yourself or you hear a, you know, in the news that something like that has happened to a real person, do you ever have moments where you feel despair and hopelessness, like, on the work um, that you're doing? Well, I expect to hear it. I hear those stories every day. Mm. Um, my own daughter is 20, she'll be 27. And she works for an ad agency in Portland, Oregon, which is a predominantly white city. Um, she was enjoying a Sunday with a friend and uh, she's into cosplay and they were, you know, doing some outfit stuff. Shout out to all the cosplay people in the world. Um, and she was walking to catch the train to go back home. And four police cars, unmarked police cars pulled up. Seven men jumped out, surrounded her and asked to see her what was in her bag. And I was, so she showed them her bag. They asked her a few questions and they eventually let her go. So my daughter texts me and says, the police just stopped me and illegally searched me. Well, asked if they could search me. Um, and I, of course, freaked out and said, put me on speaker right now so I can hear what's happening. And she said, it's over. And, you know, she's like, I know they didn't have a right to search me, but I let them search me anyway, because I just wanted it to be over. Making them feel and, comfortable again. Right. And so the reality is I never feel comfortable because I know that at any moment in time, even when you're doing nothing illegal, even when you're just, just walking, just being yourself, um, it's not, a, it's not enough to keep, to keep you safe. And it's not enough for me to keep my kids safe, which is why I do this work. I, you know, I tell people, uh, I stay at a nice, a nice simmer, a nice righteous anger because, um, because I do this work for my kids mm. and, and I'm never going to see, I'm never, I'm not going to live to see some of the fruition for this work. I know that. And that's okay with me. My kids may not see the fruition of this work, but one day it will happen. Um, mm. and that's all right. And it won't happen, I guess, will it, until, unless people who won't see the fruition are, are doing it. <laughs> until doing it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't know Australian history. I just know, it, you know, it's 450 years from slavery till, you know, 450 years from slavery till now. And so mm. it's going to take a long time. It's, that's Nothing's going to happen overnight. We've only had here legally the Voting Rights Act, which really allowed uh, black folks to have regularly and consistently have the power to vote. That's only 52 years old. Yeah. So we think these things have happened, um, that that was so far in the past and they're really not. They're all 
pretty new. When you look at Australian history, you probably wouldn't be surprised as well as a lot of the parallels and even, you know, some of the stories you shared there. They're, I'm sure you could give, I mean, they're not rare stories, are they? You could give so no. many <laughs> examples no, I, I, of so them. Yeah. Today's the third anniversary of Mike Brown, who was killed in Ferguson. And there was an uprising that happened after Ferguson. And I was talking to some friends and clients tonight. I work with a lot of activists. I work with a lot of activists who were doing work on the ground in Ferguson. And um, they, we were, they, this is, this is kind of like, you know, the funny ghoulish humor. Um, so it was three years ago today. This kid was murdered, shot by a cop, was unarmed, laid on the concrete for four and a half hours in the hot sun before anybody covered his body. Um, this town was a powder keg for lots of reasons, and um, riots started. Protests started, which led to some riots. And uh, I had some clients that were out there working, and... <laughs> So today they were just laughing because they're actually going to go see a film that was created around what happened. And they were like, hey, who three years ago was running from rubber bullets? Raise your hand. They're like, and they're raising their hands. And they're like, and who was, you know, getting hit by, by tear gas? Raise your hand. And they raised their hands. And I was like, I was at home that night. <laughs> <laughs> and they started laughing. And I was just like, yeah, but I, you know, I, I remember because I would get these text messages um, as they were saying, you know, God, we just got hit by tear gas from cops. I'll never forget it. I got a text message saying, we just got hit by tear gas from cops. And on the television, it was the, the Ferguson police chief saying to the news, that is not tear gas. That is, oh, what did he call it? It was something else. And I was like, um, that's not true. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, wow, because that's actually not, that's not true. Yeah. Um, that must be frustrating my, too. Hearing. It was super frustrating because my, because my clients literally had taken pictures of them pouring milk and magnesia, a combination of stuff for your eyes once you get gas. Mm. So, right. So here's all this proof showing it was tear gas because they're out there in the streets helping people and getting them, um, you know, doing triage work and making sure that their eyes would stop burning. And then they're on TV saying, Oh, that's not tear gas. That is some other thing that I can't remember what they called it. And, and that it's not harmful to folks like tear gases. And I was like, wow. I tell that story just to say that I think over the past few years, there've been moments like that, that mm -hmm. was a wake up call for this country. Um, it was a reflection of what's been happening in communities for a very long time. What we saw, this, you know, the town of Ferguson literally is, you know, I think it's less than 20,000 people. And I'm probably being generous when I say 20,000. And they have a tank. And they have all of these war-grade weapons. And that's because the U.S. has militarized our police they paid for all these weapons for wars in the Mideast. And then when these weapons came back home, they needed to do something with them. So they started giving them to police municipalities, mm -hmm. to states and counties. And so you have these little tiny towns, which literally now have tanks. Yeah, wow. And sound cannons. And combat gear you know um that was literally made for for war and so i think you know it was moments like what happened in ferguson which politicized and radicalized it was a tipping point in this country i think for people and it was an awakening for folks who had never seen communities that were so um, and so much pain. These communities had been in pain, but folks hadn't seen it, and and they saw it for the first time. And you're you're closely connected to a lot of this, being someone who lives it as well, and having clients who are activists. And I know you go into organisations as well, and mm -hmm. 
And then I imagine you work with other coaches and entrepreneurs who experience a online version of the, you know, discrimination and biases and oppression. It's coming from every angle. Yeah. And I work with folks who are trying to understand it better. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I do a, a couple of online classes um, that really talk about who, who's in your network and how diverse is your network and how inclusive and welcoming is your small business, your online business, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I'll get some folks who'll say, you know, I've never had a client of color ever. And I'm like, do you have relationships with, with those communities? Hmm. And if the answer is no, then I'm like, that's why. Right. Like we have to build these relationships before we need them. But we have to do this work if our businesses are going to be sustainable. The world is getting browner and younger and we have to build businesses that support them, not businesses that support this avatar of a person that actually in 20 years won't really be who we're trying to work with. Yes. Yeah. I started to realize when I've always been interested in in human rights and social justice and when I started to do my master's and look into doing my master's in human rights and I was going to these coaching and entrepreneur events and just looking around me and just Mm -hmm. feeling this real tension and discomfort about the massive difference in those two fields and and I know when I started to write about it and talk about it that a lot of other people were feeling it too, but they just didn't know what to do with that, especially if they thought that their area of business or their niche was unrelated to you know, yeah. something obvious about politics or human rights or social justice. And But there's ways, isn't there, that we can still, <laughs> that even if you feel that way, that you can still use your platform and your voice and and your privilege to yeah to yeah do something here not be quiet well for me it's about what are your values and are you living your values whether that's as a as a corporate as a as a company whether that's as an as a solopreneur as an entrepreneur how do your values kind of right like um show up in the work that you do yes um for some that may mean paying more than a living wage, right? It's like, I have a moral responsibility that, that when I work with contractors or I hire people that I pay them, you know, a certain worth, or I, I, I am actually going to make sure that I offer when I have contracts that, you know what, I want to see two or three folks of color, um, to, to get, you know, RFPs or proposals from them. Mm. Um, and again, how do I do that? How do I let them know that I have this work? It's because I've had to have built relationships with them. Mm. Um, and in the U.S., we're super segregated. I, I've been to Australia a couple of times, um, a long, long time ago. But um, in the U.S., we're super segregated. And that's that's systematically from laws that for years would not let black folks brown people buy houses in certain neighborhoods, get bank loans for certain neighborhoods, things like that. Um, it's called redlining is historically is what it's been called. And, and so that segregation still lives. Um, and it still lives because when we think about who was able, who was always able to own and buy property literally until, you know, 60, 70 years ago, mm. it, it was, white, white people. And so, um, and so we do lead these very segregated lives. Um, and research shows that if you, if you, if you're white and you have a hundred friends in the U S research shows, if you're white and you have a hundred friends, literally like 97 of them are white. And, and if you're black and you have a hundred friends, it is something like 91 or 92 percent of the 92 of them are black wow and 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 that's because there's so much intentionality that comes from leaving that comfort zone and going into neighborhoods that are not yours and 
going to churches that maybe aren't close to you and a store that's different from yours and all these other things. Like it's super intentional, but it's the only way that we get, we build those connections that we really need to diversify our own world. So I am um, a year ago, I put forth a challenge and said for six months, only read books from uh, people of color mm. and see how just for just that different perspective, how it hits you and how it changes everything. Yes. Um, yeah. So I challenge, I challenge people to do that all the time. You're going to read if you're a reader and you're going to read anyway, challenge yourself to only read books uh, from people of color for six months. Yes. Okay, I'm doing it. <laughs> I should have done it do already. It. No, do it, do it, do it. It's great. And I think I think it'll be really an eye-opening experience for you. And that can translate too, can't it, to the online world and who's oh yeah. posts you read and share and like and, and whatnot. Oh, I tell people all the time, right? Like, who do you follow? Who do you follow on Twitter? So uh, folks are always like, like you get all the news and it's because on Twitter, I actually follow a lot of journalists. Yeah. So they get a lot of breaking things or just things that they're talking about. But I also follow a lot of activists as well. And so I get a lot of really good information. I think a, a good analysis. And so what are you consuming and who are you consuming? Um, and if you're only reading again, voices that sound like yours and look like you, then you're doing yourself a disservice. So part of my online class, one of the classes I teach is we, we talk about how do you build these networks online and in real life, because building them only online doesn't do you any good. I tell folks, if the only brown people you ever talk to are on Facebook, then that's not enough. Yeah. You still have to get out in the real world and actually talk to people. <laughs> You still have to engage in the real world. And for some people who are who are um who are introverts, that can be a little difficult, but it can happen. You know, I, I know a woman who um for fifty-two weeks she went to a different community of faith. Every week she went to a different place. So she went to mosques, she went to temples, she went all over. Yeah. Every every week. Right? Yeah. I know another woman who um lives in Los Angeles, who lives in a very nice Tony part of town, but she will not put a washer and dryer in her house. She forces herself to go to the laundromat. She forces herself to go to the laundromat in a certain part of town. And she says, because if she didn't do that, she would never see brown people. Good on her. And I, I said, that's some intentionality, right? Like mm. she knows. She's like, if I don't, and, and I, cause for me, I'm like, go to the laundromat I, again. I'd rather jump off a building. Like, <laughs> why would you do that? And she's, and she says to me, cause if I don't, then I will never, ever see, see, see anybody that's not white. I love these examples because they're things that anyone can do, can't they? No matter what you, no matter what it's you just, do for a living. Yeah, or, it's just the intentionality behind it. It really is just the intentionality behind it, you know. What would it mean if your kid went to a different summer camp for one week? What if your kid went to the summer camp where they were the only one for one week, right? We get to make choices all the time, and those choices we make really unconsciously because we've been socialized. And so this is really around fighting that socialization and having some awareness around what does it mean for me to step out um, and step into this different space. What your body may say to you is that you're in danger, mm -hmm. that flight or flight stick kicks in, but you're not in danger because conflict does not necessarily always equal danger. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it doesn't. Yes. It's not that either or, like we've trained ourselves to think. Right, right. And so I'm always around what is it, what the intentional work that it takes to get up and go and meet and spend time and bear witness to somebody else's story is really important. Mm. It's important to the community. Mm. 
you've got me thinking here as well about what else. I am an introvert and <laughs> I run an online business, so I spend a lot of time at home. And I can think more about what I can do in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Being an yeah. introvert is no excuse for these things. I think it's not. Yeah. People <laughs> are like, I don't like talking to people. And I'm like, nobody said you have to talk to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. It is. It is. But you. But it's not an excuse for not putting yourself out there. Um, and you can think of ways to still protect that introverted energy while you, you know, yep. while you do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 you know, um, one of the things I talk about in the teaching is people want safe spaces and Erica Hines, who I co-teach a lot of my classes with, we always say, we don't, we don't give you safe spaces. We give spaces where people are respected. Absolutely. But we create brave spaces because I want you to push yourself to be brave around having these difficult conversations and showing up in these places in ways that you've never shown up before. Mm. Bravery is the only way we get to the other side of this. Mm. Yeah, that's right. We don't get anywhere if we're not brave enough to do that, are we? No. Um, I also saw you write, and it's I, I guess it's um, aligned with, with bravery, is around how we have to take sides that a lot of people are cautious and kind of sit on the fence and yeah. and don't take sides but that that matters yeah for for me it absolutely matters and um I I knew this uh when I woke up on November 9th and um, Donald Trump was our president mm. that it was all that there were there were no more sidelines that there could be no more sidelines we don't get to be neutral mm. And the reality is I've never been neutral in my life because um, in this country, my the, the, the hierarchy of white supremacy, that system does not allow me to be. I have to take sides for my survival. Yes. Um, but neutrality is this myth. But when you sit on the sidelines, there's a level of complicity, you of can't. complacency. Yeah, you're kind that, of taking sides by doing that. You are taking sides. You yeah. are absolutely taking a side, right? Yeah. So when I when I watch, when I see um, police brutality, or if I see someone in my office, if I see um, folks speaking over, maybe the only young brown guy in my office, over and over again, and I don't say anything. Right. If I don't say, hey, did, did, have we have y'all noticed what's happening? Then, um, you know, there's some complicity there on my on my part. If I know my neighbors has some intimate partner violence and is it being beaten or abused emotionally? And again, I don't step in. What's what's the price that we're paying? It's human dignity and, and life. Inaction and neutrality is helping the perpetrator more than it is the victims. Audre Lorde is, 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 you know, the, the, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. <laughs> right. And so silence is what we're taught. Again, going back to that socialization, we're taught to be small and silent because we want you to stay, to not question. Mm. And stay where you are. And again, that that happened. That's part of that's all part of the plan. Yeah. And it takes what you're talking about earlier with awareness and intention and and then action. Yeah, yeah. So there's um but there's something called liberatory consciousness. And y'all can look up and see. It's not my idea, trust me, I'm not this smart. But um liberatory consciousness really talks about ways that you can work against oppressive systems and um, and it says you need awareness, right? So I have to educate myself. I have to acknowledge that something's not right. And, and so I have to do that work. And then from doing that education, step two is the analysis. So analysis is the most crucial, crucial part of social change. 
I have to educate myself about the injustice so that I can get a strong critique and analysis. That's where we develop, right, that anti-racist vision. That's where we can see, okay, this is what transphobia really looks and feels like in the workplace. Um, we can challenge systems at that point. And then from that analysis, you get your action, right? So you have a deep informed analysis, which says, these are the three steps that need to happen. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I had a note here to ask you about that <laughs> as you had another great blog post on it. I'll share the links to these posts. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's, that's, the, that's the framework, right, that yeah. um, a lot of social justice and social change agents use. And I think that it really helps you come from a place of, of love and hope and optimism because in the education – and in the analysis, you see what has worked as well, right? Mm. That helps you then get the action out. I think if you only see what's not working, you think, well, why would I do anything? But you got to do, Barbara Love, Barbara Love does the um, a liberatory consciousness. But you have to have that so that you can center your work. We don't get to fight a system, an oppressive system without having joy and balance mm -hmm. in our lives and have that be the center of who we are and in the center of this work. You know, I could fight this work because I'm angry. I'm angry at injustice. I'm not angry at people. Yes. I'm angry at the system. The system that gives those people that power to. <laughs> right. I'm angry because we don't understand power dynamics and we don't talk about them. I was also right. reading about feminism as well, which I'd love to talk to you about. And you mentioned that it's it's failing a lot of the women you work with because it's centered in whiteness. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because that's something I don't think a lot of people think about. Sure, in the activism um, space, I'm sure they do. But as someone who just went to a feminist debate here recently, I was sitting there thinking that for pretty much the whole all <laughs> <the whole> evening. <laughs> so I would just love to hear, hear your thoughts sure. on this. So Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the phrase, but it's it's something that's been there for forever. And if you want to learn about it, you can read Bell, you can read Bell Hooks talks about it a lot, right? So intersectional feminism is that place where all of these oppression meets. So yeah, I'm a woman which means that do I deal with patriarchy and heteropatriarchy and all of that stuff? Absolutely. But I'm a black woman. So my, 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 my misogyny and my patriarchy are always dipped in racism. Mm. Right. And, and so that's the lens that these things are coming at me. And so sometimes that lens is the intersection is between class See, people like to say, oh, it's class or race. No, it's class and race. Yes. Because both of these things have different stress points. And both of these things affect my life in different ways. So I'll give you a great example. In the U.S., there's something called like respectability politics that says only folks of a certain class get stopped and pulled over by the police. And that leads to, you know, this kind of interaction. Which is not true. There have been Harvard professors mm -hmm. that have been arrested while trying to literally enter into their own home because somebody else called the police who didn't realize they lived in that neighborhood. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so you're like, oh, being being educated didn't help them. No. <laughs> right? Being yeah. of a certain class didn't help them. The police still saw them. They still got arrested. Why? Because they were walking in their own neighborhood. Mm. And whoever saw them did not see an educated Harvard professor. They saw a black man and made an assumption. Yes. And called the police. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I recently did an assignment for my master's. I was just telling Andrea Renee this on a previous episode and it was on digital entrepreneurship and 
and examining it from a feminist critique. And once you put the intersectionality kind of lens on, it was scary <laughs> reading the research. Basically, all the things that happen in the real world happen in the online world as well. And, you know, when it comes to inequalities and discrimination and distribution of power, that men generally had it easier, followed by white women like myself. And then once you started to add class and race into the picture, it was becoming, you know, increasingly challenged, challenging for people to the point where women of colour are being advised to whitewash their websites and to use different names and photos and mm-hmm. not to appear mm-hmm. too black or they won't make it and That's right. things like that. Or don't, be, don't appear too opinionated because then you'll be angry, right, mm-hmm. and you'll fall into this trope. And so, so, so when you talk about that intersectionality, um, it really is about how do we show, how are we seen in this world? We're not just, you know, black women has a history from slavery to, to not be seen as, as, as delicate as women even. Right. I posted something the other day, a quote that basically said, you know, we, when you go through history and you look at what was considered a lady, we weren't right. Black women were expected to work in the fields 20 hours a day, just like any man. Right. And so, so that was from blackness, but then we also got raped as a part of that too. Right. That was a tool that was held that, that was used against us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so intersectionality lies in the recognition that multiple oppressions are, are, are not suffered separately, but they're a single synthesized experience. Yes. So white, white women are passive and fragile, yeah. but black women are mules and we can clean and we can birth babies and we can walk clean houses. You know, we can do all these things. Mm-hmm. Good mothers are supposed to stay at home and take care of their kids, but black women are absolutely supposed to go out and get a job and work. Mm. Yeah, and this is in our movies and everything as well, isn't it? Right, no, right. So that's how we socialize, right? Mm. So yeah, so um, race and gender and sexuality, all these things work together in producing injustice and it's uh, intersectionality is where they all fall. Yes, yes. And again, do we come back to awareness and intention and and action yeah. around these areas. And analysis. Analysis, right? yes. reading. Yeah, and then using a strong analysis to for action. Mm. It's not enough to know. You have to act. Mm. And um I I teach a, a three month online social justice class and uh we all every month we focus, we do a deep dive in a subject and, and one of the pieces that we really always push is, okay, so what's your action? What's the action you're going to do in your sphere of influence this, this month around racism? Or what's the action that you're going to do in your sphere of influence this month around classism or sexism or heterosexism? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's not enough to know you got to do. Yes. You've got to train yourself to to do, and I love that you're doing that in the course is kind of rewiring people to not only do the analysis but to act. Yeah, yeah, right? Because I would hear so much after something happened, someone, people would be like, well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And it's like every other muscle. you got to prepare. Mm. So let's be clear. Will there be another unearned killing? Of a black person, yes. Mm. It's not if, it's when. So when that happens, what are you going to do? How are you going to talk about it? Who are you going to talk about it to? Yes. And then what's the next action after you take and the next one? And then what's the next yeah. action? Exactly. I'll share the links to the course that you just mentioned. There's a couple sure. of different levels, isn't there, for it? From what yeah. Looking at? Yeah. There are two different levels. One's a one-on-one, and that's kind of a basic introduction. Um, it's called Diversity is an Asset, and that's, that's a four-week. 
basic intro into, you know, if you don't really know the terms, what is intersectionality? What do we mean when we say equity and inclusion? Um, how do you build these diverse networks? Um, so, and then, so that's a, that's kind of a basic beginner's piece. And then um, social justice intensive is a three month deeper dive. It's like a college level course where we dig deep into um, the next uh, course, the three modules are racism, uh, sexism, and classism that we're gonna be studying. Um, Very interesting, especially when people take action. <laughs> and that's where people take action, exactly. Yeah. That's where we really push folks um, to take action. Um, and so, it is, it is, it is great. I really, I really love that course a lot because we do get to kind of dig in, um, around what is this, what does this look like in your work? Mm. You know, um, I, this summer I did a, uh, a writing, this is, I don't write, but I did a writing, a self-paced writing course. It was actually a reflection writing course. And again, it was not about the writing. It was about people finding their voice. Um, I do this dear sister thing every morning on Facebook. Um, it's a love letter to, to, to the sisterhood. And so it was a self-paced course and I was doing, uh, one of the, um, part of it was a facilitated discussion around some of what was coming up for people. But when we were, when we were doing it, one of the pieces that became fairly clear is it's really about speaking up and right. Like what are the things we got to unlearn? Mm. Right. So this work, social justice work is also about unlearning. Yeah. Cause we've been socialized to follow the status quo. We've been socialized to never fall out of line. Right. We get cookies when we go to the right schools, when we date the right partners, when we, raise perfectly pretty little children and live in the beautiful little, like all the things we get cookies for. Mm -hmm. And when we push against those, I don't know about in Australia, but in the U S you get very clear signs that you don't belong when you go against what has been laid out as the way to live your life. Mm -hmm. And for me as a black woman, I, I never paid too much attention to that because I knew that that, that, that that myth of what that life should look like was really never for me. Yes. I never saw myself in that myth, but a lot of women did. And so that dissonance comes when they realize that maybe they haven't been told the truth or that they did everything they were supposed to do. And it still hasn't stopped people from dying mm. or being hurt um, or being oppressed. And let's be clear, I, I, and I mean this when I say it, is that there's a price we pay. The oppressor pays it as much as the oppressed. When, when we are holding other people back, again, consciously or unconsciously, we pay a price. Mm -hmm. We pay a price when we don't allow people to truly live into the life they're supposed to live. As a society, we pay a price. Yes. And when you come back to what you mentioned earlier around your values, I imagine that if you tune into what they are and you realize that, you know, you reflect on this price as well, there must be a, there would often be a, a clash there. That's right. That's right. And so I'm very clear about what my value, you know, people are like, what is, what is your work? What is my work is always centered on liberation and it's always centered on the liberation of black folks. But I know that black people don't get free without everybody else getting free. I can't get free if Naomi's still tied up and bound up in ways that are harmful to her. Mm. So you'll see uh, what I write a lot is let's go get free together. Yeah. And I mean that because it, it doesn't work. It's not just that, oh, black women can get free and have undocumented trans folks be still oppressed and you no, know, that's not how any of this works. Yeah. We have to do it together. It, we are all bound together in this, mm. in this work. That reminds me of, I've been reading a little bit lately, 
uh, around the difference between calling out and calling in and it sounds like you're very much calling in a lot of the time but I will call you out too so (laughs) there's a place for both I think there's a place for both. I think it's an and. I don't think it's an or. I think it's an and. Because I, so I always say that um, I don't, I don't, I do not waste time unless someone is teachable, reachable, and ready. Mm. It's a waste of my energy. It's a waste of my time to sit here and try and make you see, um, you know. Yeah, you've been a punching bag. Right. Yeah. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not right. You know, I'm not going to argue with somebody who says, well, Sandra Bland should have just been more polite to the cop. I want you to, I know you can name five white women who've said horrible things to police as they were getting tickets, Mm. who've talked back, who've said stuff. They didn't, they didn't wind up dead. Mm. So why is it that other people can, talk back or push limits and not wind up dead, but somehow she can't. Or in the case of Philando Castile, who was in a car and got stopped and got killed and he had a gun on him and he did everything legally and right. He said to the policeman, I am carrying, I have my permit. This is where my weapon is. And he still got shot and he still died. So he did everything according to what we've told people you have to do. And somehow it's not enough. Yeah, and he's a real person. People seem to forget that sometimes, just a story in the news. But Right, that was a real person whose, whose, whose daughter was in the back seat and watched that happen. <laughs> right, there's a baby in the back seat who saw that. Yeah. Um, Right. And so, again, I think that it is really always, always, always around. Um, it, 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 we got to show up for the work. Right. And so we, we got to do it. To, we have to do it together. And it's all of us daring to be powerful and brave. Um, Audrey Lord, who if your folks never read anything else, they should always read Audrey Lord. Audre Lorde says that our silence will not protect us. We've been taught that our silence will protect us, and it's not true. Our silence silence will never protect us, right? Um, Mm. And it's unlearning those things, as you were saying before, which which can be difficult but so rewarding, and it's where we can hopefully make small differences to go toward that long-term fruition that we're aiming for yeah and when you speak you allow other women to speak Mm. and to make mistakes and right we teach our daughters to speak Mm. right I always tell women when you don't speak up some other woman actually is getting hurt right now Mm. some other woman needed to hear that message from you when you speak up, people get mad at you. They yell at you. They interrupt you. They put you down. They call you names. They tell you, you know, you're a do-gooder. And why do you care? They, they, they do this to you. But guess what? That's all right. You still speak anyway. Yes. Yes. We have to learn to fall in love with our own voice. We love everybody else's voices but our own. Oh, I could just keep talking to you, but I know it's getting late. I <laughs> so need to go to bed. I need to get you to bed. <laughs> I do. I need to call it a night. Uh. So before we go, though, how can we support you and your dream for others? I, I'll share the, the courses that you've mentioned and blog posts and your social media platforms where you use your voice in a really powerful way. Are there any other ways that we can we can support you, those who are listening? When you see some injustice in your area, speak up Mm. and push yourself, push yourself to go into a neighborhood you wouldn't normally go into, to talk to people you wouldn't normally talk to, 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 to push yourself to be the only one in a situation. So those who are listening, 
do at least one thing and take action after this based on take what action. you've heard today. Well, thank you so much for spending your evening with me and giving us so much to, to think about and to hopefully act on afterwards. I'm hoping those who are listening will, will take action today after they listen in. Well, thank you. Um, and thank your folks for, for listening. Thank you for listening to the Dream for Others podcast. If you want to connect with like-minded people who are passionate about using their platform, passions and uniqueness for social good, head on over to Facebook and search for our private group called the Dream for Others community. For episode notes, further inspiration and access to my award-nominated free resources, please visit naomiarnold.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes and share it wide and far. Let's continue to dream for others and I'll talk to you soon.